0: section six fight against formality this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain recording by tom hirsch the army's invariable principle of avoiding even the appearance of attacking any other association of religionists or their ideas or practices renders it difficult to explain fully either why William Booth became the regular minister of a church, or why he gave up that position. And yet, he has himself told us sufficient to demonstrate at one stroke not only the entire absence of hostility in his mind, but the absolute separateness of his way of thinking from that which so generally prevails. The enthusiastic welcome given to the general wherever he went, by the clergy of almost every church, indicates that he had generally convinced them that he had no thought of attacking them or their churches, even when he most heartily expressed his thankfulness to God for having been able to escape from all those trammels of tradition and form which would have made his great life work for all nations, impossible. And I think there are a few who would nowadays question that his life, teaching, and example all tended greatly to modify many of the church formalities of the past. Just before leaving Lincolnshire, he says, I had been lifted up to a higher plane of the daily round of my beloved work than I had experienced before. Oh, the stagnation into which I had settled down! The contentment of my mind with the love offered me at every turn by the people. I still aimed at the salvation of the unconverted and the spiritual advance of my people, and still fought for these results. Indeed, I never fell below that. And yet, if the after-meeting was well attended, and if one or two penitents responded i was content and satisfied myself with that hackneyed excuse for so much unfruitful work that i had sown the seed having cast my bread on the waters i persuaded myself that i must hope for its being found by and by but i heard of a reverend richard poole who was moving about the country And the stories told me of the results attending his services had aroused in me memories of the years gone by, when I thought little and cared less about the acceptability of my own performances, so long as I could drag the people from the jaws of hell. I resolved to go and hear him. I found him at the house of a friend before the meeting, comparatively quiet. How I watched him. But when I had heard him preach from the text, said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the salvation of God, and had observed the blessed results, I went to my own chamber. I remember that it was over a baker's shop, and resolved that, regardless of man's opinions and my own gainer position, I would ever seek the one thing. Whilst kneeling in that room, there came into my soul a fresh realization of the greatness of the opportunity before me of leading men and women out of their miseries and their sin, and of my responsibility to go in for that with all my might. In obedience to the heavenly vision, I made a consecration of the present and future, of all I had and hoped to have to the fulfillment of this mission, and I believe God accepted the offering. I continued my public efforts in line with my new experience. Happily and freely, as William Booth had been allowed to lead his people, however, he and his attended wife both saw that there could be no permanent prospect of victory amongst these reformers. The very popularity of a preacher was sure to lead to contention about the sphere of his labors. The people, he writes, with whom I had come into union were sorely unorganized, and I could not approve of the ultra-radicalism that prevailed. Consequently, I looked about for a church nearer my notions of system and order, and in the one I chose the Methodist new connection, I found a people who were, in those days, all I could desire, and who received me with as much heartiness as my Lincolnshire friends had done. Ignorance has different effects on different people. Some it puffs up with self-satisfaction. To others, it is a source of mortifying regret. I belonged to the latter class. I was continually crying out, O God, how little I am and how little I know. Give me a chance of acquiring information and of learning how more successfully to conduct this all-important business of saving men to which thou hast called me and which lies so near my heart. To gratify this yearning for improvement, the church with which I had come into union gave me, at my request, an opportunity of studying under a then rather celebrated theologian. But instead of better qualifying me for the work of saving men, by imparting to me the knowledge necessary for the task, and showing me in everyday practice how to put it into practical use, I was set to study Latin, Greek, various sciences, and other subjects which, as I saw at a glance, could little help me in the all-important work that lay before me. However, I set to work and, with all the powers I had, commenced to wrestle with my studies. My professor was a man of beautiful disposition and had an imposing presence. The books he wrote on abstract and difficult theological problems were highly prized in those days. Moreover, he belonged to a class of preachers, not altogether unknown today, who have a real love for that order of preaching which convicts and converts the soul, although unable to practice it themselves. He knew a good thing when he saw it. The first time he heard me preach was on a Sunday evening. I saw him seated before me at the end of the church. I knew he was going to judge me, and I realized that my future standing in his estimation, as well as my position in the society I had now made my home, would probably very much depend on the judgment he formed of me on that occasion. I am not ashamed to say that I wanted to stand well with him, I knew also that my simple, practical style was altogether different from his own, and from that of the overwhelming majority of the preachers he was accustomed to approve. But my mind was made up. I had no idea of altering my aim or style to please him, the world, or the devil. I saw dying souls before me. The gates of heaven wide open on the one hand and the gates of hell opened on the other while I saw Jesus Christ with his arms open between the two crying out to all to come and be saved. My whole soul was in favor of doing what it could to second the invitation of my Lord and doing it that very night. I cannot now remember much about the service except the sight of my professor with his family around him, a proud, worldly daughter sitting at his side. I can remember, however, that in my desire to impress the people with the fact that they could have salvation there and then if they would seek it, and to illustrate their condition, I described a wreck on the ocean, with the affrighted people clinging to the masts between life and death, waving a flag of distress to those on shore, and in response, the lifeboat going off to the rescue. And then I can remember how I reminded my hearers that they had suffered shipwreck on the ocean of time through their sins and rebellion, that they were sinking down to destruction but that if they would only hoist the signal of distress, Jesus Christ would send off the lifeboat to their rescue. Then, jumping on the seat at the back of the pulpit, I waved my pocket handkerchief round and round my head to represent the signal of distress I wanted them to hoist, and closed with an appeal to those who wanted to be rescued to come at once and in the presence of the audience to the front of the auditorium. That night twenty four knelt at the Saviour's feet, and one of them was the proud daughter of my Professor. The next morning was the time for examination and criticism of the previous day's work, and I had to appear before this Doctor of Divinity. I entered the room with a fellow student. He was put through first. After listening to the doctor's judgment on his performance, my turn came. I was not a little curious as to what his opinion would be. Well, doctor, I said, what have you to say to me? You heard me last night. What is your judgment on my poor performance? My dear sir, he answered, I have only one thing to say to you, and that is... Go on in the way you have begun, and God will bless you. But other difficulties were not far away, for I had hardly settled down to my studies before I got into a red-hot revival in a small London church where a remarkable work was done. In an account of this effort, my name appeared in the church's magazine, and I was invited to conduct special efforts in other parts of the country. This, I must confess, completely upset my plans once more, and I have not been able to find a heart or time for either Greek or Latin from that day to this. How sincerely this curious student longed for improvement is manifested in the following entry in his journal, written, I presume, on a Monday morning when it was thought that some relaxation of his studies following a Sunday services would be advantageous. Monday. Visited the British Museum. Walked up and down there, praying that God would enable me to acquire knowledge to increase my power of usefulness. Who will doubt that that museum prayer was heard and answered? The church he had joined was governed by an annual assembly called the Conference, at which candidates for the ministry were accepted into it and were appointed to some sphere of labor called a circuit. Just before the conference met, he was astonished to hear that it was proposed to appoint him as superintendent of a London circuit. He was able to persuade the authorities concerned to alter this intention on the ground of his comparative lack of experience although he expressed his willingness to take the post of assistant minister under whomsoever the conference might appoint as superintendent in due course the appointment was made and he found himself assistant to a superintendent who he tells us was stiff hard and cold making up, in part, for the want of heart and thought in his public performances by what sounded like a sanctimonious wail. This gentleman strongly objected when, as a result of the reports of Mr. Booth's services appearing in the press, he was urgently invited to visit other places, as he had visited Guernsey. The conference authorities, however, prevailed and insisted in the general interest upon his place in London being taken by another preacher, and his services being utilized wherever called for. It was thus by no choice of his own but by the arrangement of his church that Mr. Booth, instead of remaining tied down to the ordinary routine of pastoral life, was sent for some time from place to place, to conduct such evangelizing campaigns as his soul delighted in. Who can doubt that God's hand was in this disposal of his time? He was allowed to marry, though his young wife had to content herself with but occasional brief spells of association with him. His campaigns were really wonderful in their success. He would go for a fortnight, or even less, to some city where the congregation had dwindled almost to nothing, and where one or two services a week, conducted in a very quiet and formal way, were maintained with difficulty, owing to the indifference or hopelessness of both minister and people. For the period of his stay all the usual program would be laid aside, however, and he would be left free to carry out his own plans of daily service. How remarkable to find him so completely carrying with him all who had been accustomed to the old forms, and introducing with the evident sanction of the president and authorities of his church such rearrangements, records, and reorganization as he desired. But the strange and almost inexplicable thing is that, without his even remarking upon it, all should go back to the old forms the moment his campaign ended. What is not at all strange is that there should have grown up within the church a strong opposition to him, so that at the end of two and a half years, A majority of the conference voted against his continuing these campaigns, and required him to resume the ordinary routine of the ministry. Surely anyone might have foreseen that unless the old forms could be altered in favor of the new regime, the leader of this warfare must submit to the old routine. True, he might try to carry out in his circuit, to the utmost of his power, his ideas of free and daily warfare, but unless all who were under him in the various places which constituted a Methodist circuit would constantly agree and cooperate, no one man could prevent the old forms from prevailing. But William Booth was no revolutionist, and his willingness and submission to carry on the old routine with little alteration for four successive years surely proved that no desire for personal exaltation or mastery, but only the conquest of souls, was his guiding influence. In those four years spent in Brighouse and Gateshead, he tried to introduce into the churches as much as he could of the life of warfare which he considered necessary. In one year he so far won over the officialdom of Brighouse that they desired his reappointment, whilst in Gateshead he so transformed the circuit that before many weeks had passed the central chapel, which had hitherto borne the dignified but cool-sounding name of Bethesda, was dubbed by the mechanics who formed the bulk of the surrounding population the converting shop. To those iron workers accustomed daily to see masses of metal suddenly changed, whilst in a red-hot state, into any desired form by the action of powerful machinery set up for the purpose, such a name was both intelligible and expressive. It, moreover, accorded with the new pastor's idea of the proper utilization of any building devoted to the worship of Jesus Christ. There ought to be felt there, he thought, that marvelous hate of divine love, which was implied in Christ's engagement to baptize all his followers with fire, and the services should above all else be such as would ensure the immediate conversion to god of all who came under their influence but in gateshead the general was to discover the most potent force that could be brought to bear upon all these questions in the liberation of mrs booth from the customary silence which church system has almost universally imposed upon woman It might almost be said that the whole problem of cold formality, as against loving warmth, can be solved by woman's liberation. True, in the ordinary state of things, the most excellent ladies of any church become its most conservative bulwarks, and fortified as they imagine by a few words in one of St. Paul's epistles, Such ladies can oppose every new spiritual force as powerfully as some of them opposed him in Antioch 1,900 years ago. But daughters of God who have been liberated by his spirit generally make short work of any continued opposition. Mrs. Booth herself, trained and hitherto fettered by this old school of silence, to the astonishment of everyone, prayed in the church on the first Sunday evening in Gateshead. The opposition of an influential pastor in a neighbouring city to the public ministrations of a Mrs. Palmer, a visitor from the United States, very soon afterward led Mrs. Booth to defend her sister's action in the press, and thus to see more clearly than before what God could do through her, if she was willing. The general had not yet seen the importance of this advance, and, in view of his wife's delicate health, had not pressed her into any sort of activity, much as he had valued her perfect fellowship with him in private. But he rejoiced, of course, in her every forward step, And when she not only visited a street of the most godless and drunken people in the neighborhood, but began to speak in the services, he gave her all the weight of his official as well as his personal sanction, little imagining at the time what a mighty force for the spread of the truth he was thus enlisting. After faithfully serving the church in Gateshead for three years, he found the conference no more willing than before to release him for the evangelistic work which now both he and his wife more and more longed for. The final scene when, in a conference at Liverpool, Mrs. Booth confirmed the general's resolution to refuse to continue, even for one more year, his submission to form, by calling out, never marked a stage in his career which was decisive in a startling way as to the whole of his future. "'It is true that I had a wonderful sphere of usefulness and happiness,' said the general, "'but I was not contented. I had many reasons for dissatisfaction. I was cribbed, cabined, and confined by a body of cold, hard usages.' and still colder and harder people. I desired freedom. I felt I was called to a different sphere of labor. I wanted liberty to move forward in it. So when the conference definitely declined my request to set me free for evangelistic work, I bade them farewell. It was a heartbreaking business. Here was a great crowd of people all over the land who loved me and my dear wife. I felt a deep regard for them, and to leave them was a sorrow beyond description. But I felt I must follow what appeared to be the beckoning finger of my Lord. So with my wife and four little children, I left my quarters and went out into the world once more, trusting in God, literally not knowing who would give me a shilling, or what to do, or where to go. All my earthly friends thought I was mistaken in this action. Some of them deemed me mad. I confess that it was one of the most perplexing steps of my life. When I took it, every avenue seemed closed against me. There was one thing I could do, however, and that was to trust in God and wait for his salvation. The difficulty of the church was really insurmountable at that time. Since those days, most of the Protestant churches have learnt that evangelistic work is just as essential as the ordinary pastoral ministrations. The fact is that neither the booths nor the church were then aware that God behind all their perplexities, was working out a plan of his own. Who laments that separation today? As the evangelists of any church, they could not possibly have become to so large an extent the evangelists of all. End of Section 6 Recording by Tom Hirsch